0: Gobble, gobble, gobble for those who celebrate. It is Thanksgiving week, something I am thankful for because I get time off of work. But but most people are thankful for Thanksgiving because they get to gather around a large table with their family and just have a feast. And I I feel like in in this particular case with this film we're covering, hey, your family might be a, a giant table of mannequins. And he might be putting plaster on their face. How exciting is so that? much plaster. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, guys, uh, it is Thanksgiving week. So happy Thanksgiving to those who celebrate. Uh we have a, another episode here coming at you. Roger is still on his little um, what do you want to call it? Sabbatical? Does that sound professional? Retreat. <laughs> his little <laughs> retreat. He is on his retreat still. So I am joined by a, another guest, and those of you who uh, subscribe to our Patreon, which you should if you have not done so, because there's like tons of um, tons of bonus content or extra episodes up on the Patreon. I think I think there's like 65 episodes up there, including like 25 full length ones. But if if you are a patron. At our tier three level, but you're familiar with the guest that we have on uh, my guest co-host tonight because he, uh, a couple months ago, was so gracious to step in and, and do one of our Patreon episodes uh, when Roger was filming Meat, and we covered uh, what was it, D- uh, House of Death, Death Screams,
1: really good one. Yeah, I that was one that was one that I found like when I was randomly browsing like an antique shop, and it was just sitting there on the shelf, and I was like, huh, this is kind of a strange place to find this. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And you know, slasher fans, I think they grew up like in the 80s. Like I said, in the episode, we'll remember that that was like a staple on like AMC. So if you want to hear that episode, you'll have to join the Patreon to check it out. But with that said, my guest for this evening is Brett Laurie. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for for agreeing to come on and do a, a main episode. I, I know when you did the Patreon, we talked about having to have you back for the, for the main feed and here you are so why don't you take the, a moment to for for those listeners who might not be familiar with it, with you? Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? To tell a little bit about your your um, background in horror and you know all that fun stuff.
1: Oof. Okay. Well, um, I'm a huge horror fan. Obviously, I've been drawn to spooky stuff pretty much my whole life. As a kid, I wasn't really allowed to watch stuff like The Exorcist, but in my, like, early teens and, like, early high school, I kind of just dove right into pretty much everything. Like, I think one of my first, like, early horror movies was Army of Darkness, but it's more of a horror comedy, I guess. But anyways, my tastes are kind of everywhere. Um, I love 80s slashers, but I also love, like, the slower-paced psychological stuff. Lately, I've been watching a lot of, like, Italian, European horror but yeah, no, so I've edited for an art education publisher for the past eight years, um, and on the side, I do freelance editing for indie horror authors. Um, a few years back, I was writing film reviews for a horror blog, um, and through that, I was invited to an online writer's group where I met my first client. So from there, it sort of snowballed, and um, now I have a few clients. Um I've also volunteered as a PA for a short film and a pilot episode, and I uh, really hope to do something like that again soon.
0: Yeah, awesome! You definitely have uh, a, a diverse background, and and particularly with everything you're doing with, with not only like horror as a horror fan, but it's like the editing part of uh, helping indie horror authors like get their stuff polished and out there. I find that very fascinating because
1: that is. Um that's one of my favorite things kind of just like helping people see their project to fruition. And, um, it kind of really inspires me to want to create more. I, I kind of put my own writing on the back burner. Um, but lately, especially this past summer, I kind of started writing a novella and I don't know, I'm thinking about getting back into it and, uh, yeah, so being surrounded by creative people really inspires me to be creative.
0: Yeah, and coincidentally, you're editing, I think, two uh, two projects for two past guests, host on this podcast, uh, which is which I think you know we, we, we talk about the indie horror community and how you know at the end of the day, it's just like just a small little circle. There's all there's all these connections you can make to other people, and it just uh, and that's kind of why I love indie horror or or like horror fans in general, because uh, A, the circle is so small. And if you it's large, but in theory, it's not large because everyone somehow is interconnected, whether they've met at a con or whether they work with the person. It's just it's really fascinating. But uh yeah, so great to have you on. And I know, um, you know, you you chose a film that actually has been on my list like since I started the podcast um, because I, I genuinely feel like this film doesn't necessarily get talked about um, enough in, in terms of just how an effective creepy little unique piece of horror cinema it is. So with that said, why don't you reveal what film you picked and, and maybe it just why you chose this specific film to talk about?
1: Uh, so we are reviewing Taurus Trap today. Um, it came out in 1979. I first heard about this one maybe like, I don't know, maybe like a year or two ago. It was it was kind of a top recommendation for me on Amazon. <laughs> and uh, I ended up, yeah, I ended up actually finding the 20th anniversary DVD um, somewhere else, like way cheaper. So I picked it up there and then, I think what immediately drew me to it was the cover with like the creepy mask prominently on one of the characters who I won't yet name, (laughs) Uh, the red scarf around her neck, her hands holding a camera. Um, I remember reading Amazon reviews about how like strange and surreal the the movie was. And that kind of drew me to it because it seemed like a lot of movies around that time, a lot of horror movies were like more slasher based. And it seemed like this, from what I read anyways, it seemed like this almost had either kind of a supernatural or... It just seemed like it was going to have a, something different to it. So it really kind of drew me in. Um, and the, all, the, all the reviews and stuff I read were vague enough where, it, uh, it, you know, they didn't seem to give away any huge spoilers. Um, I was also intrigued by Tanya Roberts' involvement. I hadn't seen her in anything except that 70s show. So I was,
0: yeah. Tanya Roberts and that voice, that unmistakable voice. Uh, I, I remember she used to do radio ads for, um, some, uh, hotel here in Vegas. I live in Vegas, but like, I remember like back in the early nineties, she was the voice of like, Oh, Tahiti village, Tahiti village.
1: Yep. She did a commercial too. She had a commercial promoting the Tahiti village Vegas yes. resort. It would always play on like. The WB yes, or something. Yes, yes. Her and Alan six
0: Yeah, she has <laughs> yeah. that very distinct voice. Like, you know, Tanya Roberts' voice, whenever. And she's absolutely stunning in this film.
1: Very soft. And yeah, yeah she,
0: she has a very, uh, very unique voice. Yeah, and she's stunning in this film. Uh, You know, I think I, f- I kind of first heard about this film. I mean, it was, it was on the shelves in the early days of the, you know, the VHS, VCR craze. And I do remember, like, always seeing it, but kind of never being... F- uh, fascinated enough to actually pick it up and rent it, you know, because I've talked about on the podcast before, like going to the video stores on the weekends, Fridays and Saturday nights with my mom and brother. My mom would let us pick out a horror movie each. Like my brother could pick out one. I could pick out one. And I always remember seeing this one, but I was never like drawn enough to it to actually rent it. Uh, I don't know if it was because it looked maybe, I don't know, a little bit older. And we're talking about the, the heyday of the, the late, the mid late eighties when all of the cover arts were flashy and, and, and whatnot. And this was kind of a little bit more subtle, but I, I also then remember reading Stephen King's nonfiction book about writing. Um, well, some of it's about writing. It's, it's mainly exploration of horror dance macabre. And in that he devotes a lot of time to this film. And I read, I read that book maybe in like eighth or ninth grade. And he just praised this film as one of the scariest films ever made as one of the, of having one of like the best opening scenes of any horror movie. Um, And he also gets into like um, some of the production stuff and how he thinks that Chuck Connors ultimately was miscast, but the film still works. And that's kind of when I first heard. Yes. Yes. He has this whole thing about how he really thinks Chuck Connors was miscast. And it's like, you're, you're just watching him rehash his character from um, the Rifleman, And I don't know if you know this or not, but the original choice for this role, they wanted Jack Palance to play the the role, and he turned it down. And Chuck Connors was actually the third choice. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I know. kind of It kind of saddens me because Chuck Connors is actually, I think he's creepily effective in this.
1: I, I can't even i I can't imagine somebody else in this role now. That, now that I've seen this movie a few times, like he is Mr. Slausen.
0: <laughs> Mr. Slausen! Oh. Mister Slausen. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll get to her. Um, but no, so I read I read Stephen King's recommendation, and you know, at that time, I was obsessed with Stephen King. So I was like, okay, the master of horror has spoken. I need to seek this movie out, and I did. And I was just like, fuck, how did I miss this? Because there are so many things in this film that, to me, are like some of the most uh, haunting, memorable unsettling images in horror movie history
1: um i'm sure we'll get to it but yeah i know for me i think i think one of the most unsettling things is kind of the look of the mannequins where like the bottom part of the jaw will drop open kind of like a marionette puppet yeah <laughs> yeah oh my god yes
0: <laughs> and well it's tour- so yeah we are discussing tourist trap 1979 which you know, I do think that over the course of maybe the last couple of years, it's gotten a little bit more attention because I know like, oh, one of those horror t-shirt companies, Fright Rags, Cavity Colors, Terror Threat, I don't know. They did a whole tourist trap line of of t-shirts maybe like a year ago. I missed it. <laughs> I know. But at least I, I think that people like true horror fans, I don't want to say true horror fans because it sounds like I'm gatekeeping, but like- uh, <laughs> Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Horror fans who have watched extensive amounts of horror are familiar with this film. And, you know, the setup, we can get right into it if you're so obliged.
1: Yeah, I I have a quick thing. Um, So the movie is uh, co-written and directed uh, by David Schmoller? Schmoller? Mm -hmm. Schmoller. Uh, Schmoller, yeah. He also directed The Seduction, Puppet Master... Uh, so he's, he's no stranger to horror, but this was actually his first movie.
0: Yeah. And I, and I feel like he was, he was rather young when he directed this. Um, he had to have been, I also know that the first choice to direct the film was John Carpenter.
1: He's probably like, you can't afford me. <laughs>
0: they could. Yeah. Basically that's what it was. So since David <laughs> Schmuller co-wrote the script, the producer was like, well, no, you're directing. Uh, he also went on to direct like in the, early uh, mid nineties, a movie called two little monsters, which is a true crime based story. Here I am with my true crime, you know, knowledge that whole murder, Jamie Bulger murder back in the uh, UK that happened in the early nineties where those two like 10 year old boys abducted that little boyfriend in the mall and killed him. Uh, David Schmuller directs a film that's kind of based off of that story. Just a little trivia there. Just a little trivia um, for my true crime fans.
1: One more bit of trivia: production designer, the production designer on this movie, Robert A. Burns. He also worked on Reanimator, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Hills Have Eyes. So I I feel like it kind of you can tell almost yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, this film has uh, a lot of talent behind it that are responsible for for other horror films in general. And we'll get there, but um, like okay, so let's get right into it. The film opens up. Um, with a, a score by, uh, Pino DiNagio, who scored Carrie dressed to kill. I think one of the child's play films. I mean, this dude has a very extensive horror background to him. I, okay. So here's the thing. I like the score in some parts of the film, but in other parts, I kind of think it's, uh, out of place um and and the the moment that it really hits me is this opening score where it almost sounds like a circus theme um do you know what I'm getting at
1: that seems yeah that seems to be like the general consensus is that it seems kind of weird and out of place um it seems like a lot of people complain about the score because it's oddly like happy sounding and it doesn't seem to fit for a horror film But also, like, I think part of me thinks that it's like obscurity and kookiness kind of works because like, wouldn't this be exactly what would be playing in like a jovial killer's head as they sit on the floor and play with dolls?
0: (laughs) You're right. And I also got I got that because I was thinking about like, this is this sounds like, you know, something you would kind of hear playing like in the background of some creepy, silly, kooky roadside attraction, right? You walk in and you have all these mannequins and you have this kooky kooky. circus music playing to me it was just really jarring though like
1: it's it's not the classic like slasher music opening
0: (laughs) no no but the film i mean we get what i do like about the film is we just get right into it we 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 focus it on woody
1: that opening that opening shot of his abs and his crotch
0: (laughs) he has a shirt he has his he has a shirt unbuttoned he stops and takes a a swig from his uh, canteen and his glistening sweaty chest and abs are all on display. I'm like, okay, okay. I can see. I can see Woody Woody getting it.
1: The uh, the traveler's canteen, yeah. And the hat that obviously screams, I'm a traveler. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, so but we find out he's rolling a tire down the street. And then we, we, we kind of shift focus to his car, which has gotten a flat tire. And we have Eileen. She is just a lounging out next to that car. While she's sitting there, the the group of the remaining group of friends pull up in their little jalopy and we have Molly, Becky, and Jerry. And we find out that yes, Woody, they got a flat tire. Woody brought a spare, but alas, it had no air in it. So he has to
1: That spare looks perfect. (laughs) He's like
0: Yeah. Yeah, he, he is rolling this spare down the road and it obviously has air in it. If this if this spare did not have air in it, you would not be able to roll it down the road. He'd be carrying it. It's it's a perfectly fine spare, and I, I just think Eileen just you know she just sent him off to, to be rid of him. I don't know, but he gets to this old gas station, and I see this movie compared to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre all the time, and I can see why. There are so many parallels between this film and Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
1: Oh, the setup like, oh, needing to get parts for the car, needing to go to the house. Yeah, I can see like the mirrors, yeah.
0: An old gas station, right? There's a gas station in Texas Chainsaw Massacre that's kind of of a, a prominent thing. But Woody gets to this old gas station. It's called Oscar's Eats. Now, I don't know what in the fuck possesses him to think that this place is even open. This looks deserted. Like there are tumbleweeds. Blowing through it. And he walks right in like you're like, he's expecting to literally see like a full mechanic team working behind the counter.
1: Yeah. This is clearly an abandoned storefront. Yeah.
0: (laughs) But he goes, he's, can I get some service? Well, no, because the fucking place has been closed for 30 years, Woody. Come on. But he goes in and we hear this like moaning from the back room, which kind of sounds like sexual a little bit. (laughs) It's like, oh, oh,
1: I like probably wouldn't go back there. Just, you know, but I mean, I guess he did walk up I mean, we don't really have any in- inclination of like how long he walked there, but I guess I guess he he's there for a reason. So why not?
0: I think he knows what he's doing. He's, he thinks he's going to be walking back in that back room and seeing somebody get railed because it literally sounds like <laughs> sexual moaning. He's all trying to play innocent like, oh, is anybody back here? And you just hear this. Oh. oh. He goes back in this back room and there's a, like a, a figure, like this woman figure laying on a mattress on the floor.
1: Kinky, curly wig.
0: Yeah, <laughs> these mannequins. Whew. But he goes to approach it and it like pops up and laughs hysterically at him.
1: And it, this is like in the first five minutes of the movie, too. It's It's like, wow, this is we're already like full into it.
0: That's what I say. I, I do like the fact that this film just goes balls deep right from the beginning because, I mean, all hell breaks loose in this opening scene. Let's be real. I mean, once this mannequin pops up, like windows close, doors close by themselves. Um, You know, he's trying to get out of the window. Uh, a mannequin, half of a mannequin's body like busts through the window and scares him. And then we get that fucking closet. He opens that closet. Yeah. And that fucking bald-headed, that fucking bald-headed mannequin that is the thing of nightmares, fucking nightmares. My
1: favorite dummy in the opening sequence is, is yeah, is that one that pops out of the closet. Uh, fun <laughs> fact, the, the, the crazy laughter that he, yeah, you hear is actually an archival recording of Dallas McKinnon's voice. He, he's done like a bunch of Disney movies. He was like a hyena in Lady and the Tramp. He also voiced characters in Pinocchio, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians. He's also the voice of uh, Ripper Roo, uh, in, Cra- in the Crash Bandicoot video games. I don't know if I'm sure somebody listening is familiar with like that crazy blue kangaroo that is like the first boss in the video game. Anyway, so this guy has a crazy like amount of voice acting and you could tell he's, he's just nuts.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, this thing is this thing is nightmarish. It look, kind of even it's it's hideous. It's all like contorted, bald. It reminds me of like that punch, Punch and <laughs> Judy. Wasn't that wasn't that well that hideous? What was that one from? Uh, what was it, Mister Rogers? What was that, Lady Elaine or something? That hideous thing with the big nose. I I can see. Do you know the, what I'm talking about? Yeah,
1: no, with the, with the kind of yeah, I can kind of see it.
0: <laughs> yes, and it's just like, <laughs> and then you got that head. <laughs> that fell on the floor that's like laughing and then you got that you got that broad, that dark-haired mannequin that's just like rocking back and forth slowly, just opening her mouth every once in a while.
1: There's like three or four dummies like ganging up on him basically. Yeah.
0: yeah, It gets batshit crazy real quick. I mean, he, he can't get out. All these mannequins are laughing at him and then all of a sudden like cabinet opens up and literally things start flying out of the cabinet at him. I mean, jars of I don't know, jelly jars of, I don't know what it is, but they're flying like rapidly at him. Now, I kind of feel like Woody could have got out of this room easily because the window was broken. The mannequin fell through it.
1: I have that note. Yeah. With the window already crashed through, why couldn't he just hop out of it?
0: Yeah. But he just literally the whole time hangs onto the doorknob on the floor, just screaming. And ultimately it's, you know, he he basically, I don't want to say he gets himself killed, but I mean, just staying there, or not doing anything. I mean, a knife flies out of the cabinet and almost embeds him in the head. That's the moment I would have like got up and jumped out the fucking window. But he doesn't. And what happens is this pipe, uh, this large pipe flies up off of the floor and right into his back. It looks painful.
1: I I like the like and they don't just stop there. I like that they kind of so they do like kind of an artsy shot of the blood pouring out of the 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 rod and like landing perfectly on a on something on the floor like a metal sheet pan or something. So it was a really cool like opening sequence.
0: It really is. And the one thing about this film also that's really really um interesting is that it is rated PG.
1: I totally don't get that. <laughs> but I guess PG-13 didn't PG-13 didn't exist, I guess. So but this does not register as a PG movie.
0: No, I cannot. I mean, this is, it's pretty, I mean, I wouldn't say it's overly graphic, but, I mean, there are some really terrifying sequences like in this film. I could not imagine like sitting a little like five year old kid down and making them watch this.
1: There's, yeah, I was gonna say we'll run down the list later, but there's like a lot of create a lot of like awful things happen. I'm like, this is not a PG movie. (laughs) Don't take your children to this, please.
0: No, well, you have parents that are taking their kids to like Terrifier 2 and shit. So nothing surprises me anymore. So, yeah, so. The group without Woody, I, I, okay, so another thing is that I don't understand is like how this group is just like so willing just to like leave Woody and like, they're like, oh, well, he's walking to the gas station. Let's, let's go. I guess they think they're going to meet up with him later, but there's never really like any specific like plan for that so they just like leave him
1: they're like let's just let's just kill time by going for a drive
0: or something yeah I and then know. they're they're driving down this like road and she sees his tire like laying on the side of the road which I don't know how it got there because two minutes earlier well, he, he put it in front of the gas station but now it's laying and she's like oh that's Woody's tire how do you know <laughs> like can you I don't
1: she recognizes those grooves in the tires. She she's she's good. I guess,
0: I guess. But they they turn down the road because they see Woody's tire, and they end up seeing a sign for Slosson's Lost Oasis. <laughs> it's
1: got a mineral springs, an old west museum, and, and gift shop, and it's it's it was once a hopping place. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was a hopping place. We'll find out here real quick. Uh, as they pull in, Jerry's car conveniently stalls out. Dun dun dun, and it doesn't really start the rest of the movie until the very end, which is again odd. As they get out, Eileen she wanders off and finds a swimming hole. She calls all the people over. She's like, "Guys, come and look at this!" And they're like, "What is it?" She's like, "I don't know. I think it's paradise. It literally looks like a a hole, like a a, a puddle with a waterfall." And they they're just on awe over this thing,
1: and Molly of course, <laughs> and Molly of course has ob- has objections. She's she's like, no, we shouldn't be doing this. So Molly is the she's the wallflower of the group. She's kind of like the goody two shoes. Like she's in this like little Debbie bonnet.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is that? What is she wearing? She,
1: why are they Why are they with her? <laughs> why did <do> they?
0: <laughs> okay, so yes, you have. You have the drop dead gorgeous Tanya Roberts and um, Elaine, Eileen, Eileen. It's Eileen. Elaine is the thing from <laughs> Mister Rogers. Um, but uh, no. So you have you have Tanya Roberts, who's stunning, love, it. and you have Robin Sherwood who plays Eileen. They're both you know curvy, stunning women. They're they're wearing like tight shorts and like tight tank tops and stuff. And here they put poor. Molly played by Jocelyn Jones. They put her in this like long white frumpy dress.
1: Mary had a little lamb. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, this huge white bonnet. Her hair is in pigtails. I mean, they're really trying to, I think, the like force it upon the audience, oh, look at this is the this is the, you know, the the pure innocent good girl here of the group, which I don't know.
1: Yeah, I have I have that the the three girls all seem to represent almost like different extremes. So Eileen, is, Eileen to me registers as like the bad girl. She's like, I'm doing this. Let me know when you get your act together, whatever. Becky seems to almost be like in the middle. Like she, she's, a, she's very sweet. Uh, she's like sort of the middle character of the three and she's someone who, but she's someone who could be swayed to break the rules. And then Molly is ultimately the one who is like on the very opposite end of the spectrum. She's like, I'm not going to do anything <laughs> like,
0: yeah. Although I do find it interesting that she agrees to go skinny dipping.
1: Yeah, I I don't know, peer pressure, who knows?
0: (laughs) It must be because like, yeah, because Eileen's like, oh, well, we can go swimming. And Molly's like, no, we can't. We don't, we didn't bring our suits. And Eileen's like, well, who needs swimsuits? And the next thing you know, they're in there skinny dipping. All of them are butt ass naked. And we don't get any nudity, but they're all, it's implied, right? Mm
1: -hmm. I I was going to say not. Not to regurgitate what's already been said on like other commentaries and stuff, but if you look up the production history, you'll find that the skinny dipping scene was supposed to include full frontal, but I guess they didn't put that in like the contracts at the time, and it was pretty much day of. And when the director asked them if they would do it, nobody wanted to do it. So good for them.
0: <laughs> yeah. Hey, you got to have boundaries, right? I know. Yeah, because I know Robin Sherwood had a had a really bad experience. The actress that plays Eileen with the previous film that she did. Um, where like she had to do a nude scene and then, and the directors, she was really uncomfortable with it. And then the director's like, Oh, well, okay, we don't worry about it. We, we're not going to show anything like in the final film. But then when the film premiered, it showed like her completely naked. So she was very steadfast against nudity at that point. Um, yeah. So the next thing, you know, Mr. Slauson, who we find out is Mr. Slauson. We see this man approach the, the, the watering hole with a gun. Ominous. Of course, Chuck Connors is gonna show up with a fucking gun because he's the rifleman.
1: He's he's the cowboy, he's the cowboy movie guy. Yeah, he's in a lot of westerns.
0: He is. And he's like asking the girls, Are you are you kids enjoying yourselves? And they're all just like, uh, I don't know, they don't know what to do. And he does mention the fact that he used to charge people 75 cents a day to swim. But he doesn't get any visitors anymore because the new highway opened. Now, what does that remind you of?
1: A lot of movies, actually. Wait, no. Isn't, isn't that Psycho? Yeah.
0: Yes, the Bates Motel. That's exactly you know what Anthony Perkins or Norman Bates tells Marion Crane, that they don't get visitors anymore because the new highway opened up.
1: Now that I think about it, the, the path that I'm, I know we'll get to the, the West Museum, but the path that actually leads from the museum to the, I guess, the house is also kind of like Psycho. It's kind of like this long path that the character has characters have to walk.
0: Yeah, you're right. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. But for some reason of all three girls, he, he takes a fondness towards Molly. It seems like, you know, he asks her what her name is. She's like, I'm Molly. And he you know, he's, Oh, it's so glad to meet you, Molly. And he looks like, I mean, they kind of even look sort of smitten with each other in some particular interactions.
1: They do exchange a lot of like happy glances towards each other, and yeah, he's definitely like pretty much speed dating her here. (laughs)
0: Yeah, well, he instructs them that they better leave before dark because at dark the watering hole fills up with water moccasin. But I mean, his introduction—he doesn't seem, you know, he doesn't seem ominous. He just seems like, you know, a, a, a guy that's that's curious about what's going on in his property. There's nothing like. overtly like oh he's he's mysterious or oh he's a villain or whatever he just kind of he's kind of playing along with the fact that these girls are like technically they're trespassing you know
1: but yeah he takes a very like good old boy approach and like you could tell he's that character who kind of like (laughs) i have in my notes he longs for the nostalgic days of early americana before the time of modern machines (laughs) like he has that like he just had he has that feel like he's just He's very, he seemed like someone who's kind of like stuck in the past.
0: Oh, very much so. Very much so. The fact that, yeah, there's a lot of, that's revealed through dialogue here coming up that he is definitely one that is longing for the, day, the good old days in his mind. The girls get out, they get back to the car and Mr. Slauson is there and the car still won't start. So Mr. Slauson invites them to go back to his place so that they can figure out, you know, a a way to fix the vehicle if it's possible.
1: House of Wax totally copied this part. (laughs) House of Wax 2005. It's like, I was like, oh my God, so many, so many scenes in this movie are also in House of Wax.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, and it makes sense because there is definitely, I mean, there's parallels between the whole idea of, of turning people into into plastic mannequins and things like that that run through this movie, yeah, that were carried over in the House of Wax. I mean, this movie actually, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, of references to other films and other films that later reference this film, it seems. I was just like counting them as we, as I was watching. I was like, okay, this reminds me of this. Oh, this reminds me of this. I mean, you get a whole bunch of stuff going on in this film. But yeah, they get back to his his house, which ends up being the Slossons' uh, museum. It's like a wax museum. It's full of mannequins. They go inside. It's full of mannequins, uh, all kinds of shit, taxidermy. Or sorry, it's full of mannequins. It's full of taxidermy, and as Eileen says, junk. Where'd you get all this junk? I mean, and he has this he has this conversation with them about like how. You know he used to be in the Army Army. he was kicked out and then he spent some time in jail and all this stuff. Um, and that his past really, as he tells Molly, let him learn what living was all about.
1: And Molly's just like very like nodding, smiling. She's like she's very engaged. Everyone else is kind of just you can tell they don't really want to listen, but
0: <laughs> yeah, they're just like this guy's not shutting up. But, man, uh, but we also find out that, that his brother made the mannequins because Eileen is like, oh, these mannequins are so lifelike. He's like, yeah, my brother made these. And, you know, he, he was so good at making mannequins and wax figures that the city hired him. I I snorted when
1: Eileen was like, oh, these are so lifelike. I'm like, girl, these are literally department store mannequins. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs>
0: they, yes. They try to make, <laughs> yeah, half of a, yeah, I mean. That's. I, I was thinking the same thing. She was an awe of it, and it looks like something you'd see at J C. Penney wearing a bra. You know, I mean, I do uh, But he also he. But these mannequins are special, Brett, because he he turns them on and they actually can perform little skits.
1: <laughs> oh the the whole animatronic what Davy Crockett and what was the other one? There was it was
0: ugh, a Native know. American Davy Crockett. Yeah. They can shoot their guns. They can they can you know do all kind. Of, they can move. I don't know. But all, when they're doing this, Eileen also looks out the window and notices a house, and and she asks him who lives there, and he says, "Well, it's Davy." Davy, who? Davy Crockett. I had to separate him and whoever else is in here, uh, and then he leaves. He's like, "I'm going to go help Jerry with the truck. You girls stay here. Do not go snooping around." He tells them because of coyotes. And when he, when he leaves, what is the first thing Eileen do, does? I uh, She's being too nosy for her own
1: good. Like, there's no reason for her to have this, like, strange kind of obsession with wanting to go into the house. But, like, yeah, she, she is drawn to it for some reason. I, is it because she wants a working phone? Because they do try the telephone, but he said, oh, I don't need to make any calls. So he doesn't have a working phone at the museum.
0: But who does she want to call is my question. Like who is she? Try who? She who does she need to call so bad that she needs a phone? And and then secondly, like, yeah, she she says she wants to go to the house because she finds something very suspicious about Mister Sloth and she thinks he's hiding something.
1: I wish they'd given her a better like reason or I don't know, like what what made her suspicious? Like I don't know.
0: I mean, yeah, because he's done really nothing so far that to me would be like, Oh yeah, he's a weirdo or he's, he's suspicious as she says, Uh, mainly because he tells them not to go to the house. She, she's automatically suspicious and wants to go check it out. I don't know. I feel like Eileen's just a troublemaker, And
1: also there's that, it's that classic. Like if you tell someone not to look, you know, they're going to (laughs) look.
0: Yeah, no, she's just a troublemaker. She, she goes immediately and she heads to the, uh, to the house. And when she gets to the, yeah, she has to. They they have to walk this long path to get to the house. It's very, you know, long, and there's like fence posts and stuff that.
1: Good place to get murdered or like mauled by coyotes or something. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, when she gets to the house, she hears these voices coming from the inside, and I love the fact that these people, these these tourists, they have no concept of like. This is somebody's house. I probably shouldn't just walk right in. Like, she literally walks right into this house. Like, can you ever imagine doing that? Just like walking in?
1: I, yeah, I don't understand.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but I I also feel like kind of the buildup of it is very much like Texas Chainsaw Massacre as they're walking to that house for the first time and going in. But yeah, just the goal of her just to, to walk into this house. And, and she goes inside and she immediately hears these voices again. And, and she kind of snoops around and she gets into the living room and we see there are two elderly people sitting in rocking chairs. Although when she approaches, we realize that they are just mannequins.
1: If I found if I found that, I would immediately probably leave.
0: <laughs> well, especially the one the, the grandmother one is rocking by herself.
1: Yeah, I I'd be like, this isn't a normal place. <laughs>
0: No, I don't. Although that grandmother mannequin is probably my favorite in the whole movie. I don't know why. She just looks so grandmotherly. She has a bun in her hair. She's just like very stern. She's like.
1: I think she even has a line later in the movie.
0: She does have a line later. She's very stern. She's like, you better watch yourself. And she's just rocking back in that chair. Um, she's like, oh my God. And then she hears someone call her voice and she thinks it's Woody. So she goes into another room. And this room is like full of mannequins.
1: This is a creepy room. This is probably the creepiest room. I mean, we've only been in like two rooms so far, but like this is, yeah, the ones in here, especially the way they're like lit and their eyes and like, I don't know, they're and also all the mannequins in here have like these giant grins and yeah, creepy.
0: Well, she takes a scarf from one of the mannequins and puts it on. And as she's tying the scarf, she's looking in a mirror, and we get this like nice little startled scare where right behind her, all of a sudden something appears, and it is a, by all accounts, it's a person wearing like, why would you even? Do? It's wearing like a mannequin face. Um, it has like a blonde wig on, like a shag blonde wig, and it has like Woody's hat, right?
1: I think I think in this scene, isn't it just the regular like black bob at first? I can't remember. I don't think he has the
0: hat on. I know he has the hat on and I think there's like blonde hair and under the hat. I'd have to, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I, I think, I think it's like the the early attempts at it to be like Woody because she, she, when he appears in the mirror, she even says Woody and she turns around and it's this. Right. No, you're right. It's like grotesque adult, like mannequin. And it immediately like starts to move shit. Like it's, Doing its carry glances, where every time it looks, like a chair flies or a door flies shut or a window flies shut. This thing has, it's established very early on, or it's hinted at. These this thing has like telekinesis, right? It can it can move things with its mind. Because what ends up happening is it makes it, it flies a chair over to poor Eileen, and she's forced to sit on it. And then it slowly, the scarf that she tied around her neck for the mannequin, it slowly like strangles her to death with it.
1: And she so. I'm kind of wondering is, is like whatever he's doing with the psychokinesis, is it like holding her in place so she can't move too? Because she literally does not try at all to do, she doesn't get up, she doesn't like, she just goes, no, (laughs) like she doesn't, she doesn't fight, you know?
0: She barely, yeah, she doesn't scream, she just like sits there. Uh, I don't know, I don't know like the extent of this person's telekinesis like if it if it's supposed to be like holding her there because like yeah she's just like watching her she's watching the uh the scarf ends just like tighten around her neck and she's really not doing anything and then it just like cuts you know something falls on the floor and then we just cut away from from what happens to her but we also i mean we find out here in a a bit what happens to her so and I, i mean they off Eileen pretty quickly in the film i mean this is not that we're not that far into the film at all. So Eileen's already gone. Back at the museum, Molly and Becky see a mannequin in a white dress, and it's like in this—it's like encased in this like like white little enclave thing with some light shining on it. And and Molly goes up and touches it. She's like, "Ooh, it feels like f- flesh." I'm I'm like, no,
1: it doesn't. It doesn't look like. <laughs> Like, I don't know. I, it doesn't look convincing to me that it would feel like, but apparently, yeah, apparently it's supposed to be like one of the most lifelike mannequins they've ever seen. And, uh, Molly's super unsettled by it. She like, she's like, I don't even want to look at this thing anymore. And, um, I like that Becky is like, it's just a mannequin. Like, you know, relax.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mr. Slaw they hear a noise and it's basically Mr. Slauson coming back in and he startles them. Um, and he has a story. He's like, Jerry took my truck into town to, to, you know, get, get parts for his vehicle. And then he proceeds to like, oh, he makes some comment about, oh, that Jerry has a good head on his shoulders. Are you in, in Becky's like, yeah, he does. And he, and Mr. Sloss like, well, you're going to make him a good wife, aren't you? You got to be a good wife. And he just goes on this thing about his wife and how she was the best wife ever. They it on, they were planned on building a hotel on this property and really making it like a, like a resort that people wanted to come to. But then she died of cancer in his arms. Yeah. And poor is like, Oh, I'm so sorry. And then he notices Eileen's gone. He's like, where's that other brought at? <laughs> he's like, Oh, I bet you she's snooping around out back. So he goes out there and he uh, runs up to the house. And while he's out there, he's calling for Davey. Like he's like, Davey, Davey, you in here? And then he, he gets to the room that Eileen was in and he opens the door and we see her <laughs> sitting in a chair now as a mannequin.
1: I love it. And and yeah, that's that that uh iconic image, that's like the that's what they use for like the original poster art, the DVD, like all of it. Um Eileen with the mask on, the red scarf around her neck.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so she was strangled and turned into a mannequin. Again, very like house of wax like, right?
1: Totally. I this whole like I said, this whole movie kind of reminds me of especially the 2005 version of of uh, House of Wax, because especially when Eileen walks in and you had you see the two mannequins standing like sitting there. And yeah, definitely big House of Wax vibes. While
0: well, this is going on with with Mr. Sloss looking and finding Eileen. Molly is back at the property looking through his photo album. And of course, Becky's like, Razzner saying, oh, you're nosy. He wouldn't appreciate you looking at his photos. And she's like, no, it's on the coffee table.
1: Given given Molly a taste of her own medicine, because Molly's the one that's always like, oh, you shouldn't do this.
0: Yeah, Uh, that was funny. I thought it was funny. Yeah. Uh, But she, as she's flipping through, she sees a photo of a woman that looks exactly like the mannequin. She's like, oh, my God, Becky, look at this. So they go back to look at the mannequin, and when they do, Mr. Slauson comes up behind them and and realizes what they're talking about and just says that he loved his wife very much and that his way of remembering her was to make her into this lifelong mannequin or this lifelike mannequin.
1: I would have been a little, like, creeped out. They don't seem super creeped out by it, but, like, he kind of spins it as, like, it's kind of a... It's almost like a shrine that he's memorizing her, and and so I sort of get it.
0: Yeah, yeah, but it's 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 almost like the way he starts talking now during the film, like when he's talking about his wife and like making her a mannequin, he is getting a little bit a little bit more creepy. Like the creepiness is amping up a little bit. Like it's still not enough to be like, oh, we need to get the fuck out of here, but it's starting to get a little bit more, you know, tangible in terms of. Okay, there could be something going on with this. He says he's going to go look back for Eileen. He didn't find her the first time, and he grabs a gun to go look for her.
1: They're like, what the fuck are you doing?
0: <laughs> yeah, with a gun, Becky says, and he's like, fine, no gun. So he leaves it. Now, these girls, I mean, okay. So why didn't they just go with him to look for Eileen? Like, he literally leaves. leaves. And he even had a gun. He could have taken a gun for protection if they were worried about anything.
1: Doesn't Becky, I feel like Becky at least tries to ask, to, doesn't she ask like, hey, can we please go with you? And he's like, nah, it's best you ladies stay put. Could, that could have been later in the movie. But like, I'm remembering that she does try.
0: I think you're right. I think you're right. I can't remember if it was this point or the point when he first goes to look at her, look for her. Um, but yeah, yeah, you're, they don't go with him. He leaves and they immediately decide they're going to go out and look for her themselves
1: yeah becky's like stay put my ass yeah i'm like
0: yes but like you're gonna run right but you're gonna run into him you don't even you don't even like give him a head start like he's probably still right out on the porch i mean so they because they literally they literally right when he goes out the door they follow but they go up towards the house and when they get to the house (laughs) they hear giggling and for some reason Becky immediately recognizes it as Eileen's giggling. So she automatically thinks that Eileen and Woody are in there getting it on. So she wants to go in there. And of course, wet and Molly's like, no way. I'm not going in there. I'm going back to the museum. You can't go in there.
1: It's so pointless because she was like, I'm going with you. And then one second later, she's like, yeah, actually, no, I'm going to go back. Uh, Yeah, I overall, like for most of the movie, I feel like Molly's not like a super exciting character that you want to follow. Like she's very much a buzzkill. But then meanwhile, Becky seems to be the one who actually has like the drive to like She seems to like want to figure things out. She wants to keep the plot moving. She cares about her friends. Whereas Molly just wants to kind of like sit at the museum.
0: Yeah. So Molly goes back and here we go. Okay. So answer me this. So Eileen just walks through the front door of the house. Like she goes up, she walks in fucking Becky climbs up a terrace to the roof to climb in a second story window. Why didn't she just go through the front door?
1: Well, wasn't the wasn't the light in the top room on? She's like she wants direct access to that room. She's like I want to see them fucking.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, she must, she must, have, she must want to see some woody dick, which I don't blame her. I don't blame her.
1: He's very handsome. Alas, yeah. he was only in uh, he was in like what five minutes of the movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he's definitely more handsome than what's his name, Jerry.
1: Yeah, Jerry's Jerry's okay. <laughs>
0: he's okay. He's yeah. Inside Becky hears the laughing and she opens up one of the rooms and it's full of mannequins. And I, I love the fact that there's like a bed with like two lumpy figures on it. And she automatically like thinks it's, uh, Woody and, uh, Eileen fucking. And she's like, Oh, you guys, what are you doing? And she pulls the cover off and it is literally this like grotesquely mannequin with with messy makeup what happened to this thing's makeup its lipstick is everywhere
1: face very painted up in the worst in the worst way possible yeah <laughs> so even even when she sees this she still thinks that like um eileen and what are you like messing with her so she's like come on guys come on please and then uh plaster face <laughs> i'm calling him plaster face I think some of the I think some of the crew members actually on the movie also called the the killer plaster face as well.
0: They did. They were very much aware, I think, of the Texas Chainsaw parallel vibes. And there is there are moments in this film where like the killer with his getup looks like Leatherface. Specifically there's moments where he, like looks like Leatherface from um Texas Chainsaw Massacre Four. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so yeah, Plasterface comes up behind her and um and and like tries to grab her, and as she, 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 she's able to to get away. And she gets to the door to try to get it, but all the 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 doors close and lock. So it's it's this thing with the telekinetic power. She gets to like like one door across the room, and she opens it, and all of these mannequins there's like dozens of them. They like fall on top of her, knocking her to. Oh, like,
1: she gets mauled by mannequins. Oh, they're everywhere. Yeah.
0: <laughs> they're just like they're. It's like it's literally like. Have you ever seen like you know? It's like a clown car with clowns emerging (laughs) like just when you can't just when you don't think another mannequin could come out of this fucking closet it does it's like jesus fuck yeah so she falls on the floor the killer we're gonna call like plaster face davy i don't know who what you want to say davy plaster face comes to manhaler and she's able to hit him with a mannequin arm like what a mannequin arm
1: I but I still love that she this whole scene, she's at least trying. She's trying the doors, then yeah, she gets knocked down but then she grabs the mannequin hand, hits him with it. Uh and it just makes me really root for her. Like she I feel like she's someone that she, I think she's like primarily the one of the only characters that I'm, I'm like yes, please survive. Please, please, please.
0: Yeah, she tries to fight back. She hits him with a a, a mannequin arm, which I don't know if that would knock somebody out, but apparently it does. But then this is when the mannequins like gang up on her, and they get—they must be mad because they start swaying. And this is when you get the that score that kicks in with the with the breathy ah ah ah. ah." (laughs) Yeah, and they all they all like fall on top of her which i do like this the fact that then this cuts right to the basement where we see that jerry has been captured and he's tied up in the basement along with this girl this like random girl now who is tied to a table in the basement davy brings becky downstairs and he starts he actually speaks like one thing that like startled me about this moment is like how much dialogue this Killer has, it's a lot. Like he brings down um, Becky, and he's like, "I brought you." A, he has a deep voice. I brought you a visitor, and then he looks at the girl and he's like, "You're so pretty. Why don't you like me?"
1: So I have, I have my notes. Set. So the girl actually that's strapped up to the gurney, uh, credited as Tina. I don't even know if we learn her name in the movie. She is actually played by. Let's see, it's in here somewhere. Uh, an actress uh dawn jeffrey and uh according to imdb she was also in mommy dearest she's she has a very short role she's she's the character who ends up discovering her boyfriend making out with christina in the stable and she gets all jealous and angry oh my god that's her apparently unless imdb is lying to me
0: (laughs) oh my god let's hope not because that girl was a bitch in in mommy dearest so i'm glad she gets plastered in this one Serves her right for tattling. I'm gonna tell. Remember, mommy Dearest, That's what she says. I'm gonna mm. tell.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. So so Davey, Yeah, he's very, and it's kind of shocking to hear him talk because up up to this point, I he's been like kind of like almost like I don't want to like say like a Michael Myers character, but like he yeah he doesn't talk at all. He's kind of like a stalker where you you'll see him behind Eileen, you'll see him behind Becky, uh, and he doesn't really. Yeah, he doesn't really verbalize anything, but yeah, he's like we are going to have a party. <laughs> he, he he offers like I think no, I think he leaves and then he comes back and he like offers everyone a drink and who knows if it's if it's just I mean, no, he ends up taking a sip, so obviously it's just it's fine and like but I would have definitely taken the drink if I was uh if I was Tina because she's going to need it.
0: Yeah, it seems like it was tequila. Hey, I'm all about that. But yeah, Jerry is like, because you know, Becky is like, who is that? What's he want? And Jerry's like, oh, that's Lawson's crazy brother. And that's when Tina, the girl on the table, she's like, yeah, he's gonna kill us all. She does reveal that she was caught so- by him when she stopped at the gas station. She's like, I stopped at that gas station and he came out of nowhere. Like, how many fucking people are fooled into thinking this obviously 30-year-old deserted gas station is open?
1: But I do like that it, it connects this kind of this helps to connect it back to the gas station. It wasn't just kind of a random location that this is where Davy frequents to pick up his uh, hunt, his <laughs> his kill. <laughs> um, and and yeah, so the uh, Tina, that's her. I, da- I don't even think she they ever say her name in this. But anyways, yeah, she's definitely in the stage of her horror movie journey where she's already probably had like a movie's worth of stuff happen to her. And she's kind of clocked out and given up.
0: Yeah, well, we get a little image or a little montage of him of Davey putting on a black tux. He's getting dressed up for this occasion. He puts on a black tux. He puts on he puts on his black wig, he puts on a top hat. He is looking like Abraham Lincoln. But yeah, he goes downstairs with some alcohol and he offers like everyone a drink and nobody wants to take it. So he ultimately like throws it in um in Jerry's face and then he's like it's time to party. <laughs> He gets bummed because nobody will drink with him. So he's like, fine, the party's over.
1: Oh, yeah. So then he starts to apply something that is clearly not plaster, even though it's supposed to be plaster. Like how expensive? I don't think plaster is expensive, right? (laughs) Was it too expensive to just get a bucket of plaster for the scene? I think it's like I think the director said in in the the DVD commentary that I watched that it's literally just dough, like pizza dough or something.
0: It's like, yeah, it's bread dough. I don't know. Maybe they, I, I would assume they did, they wouldn't want to put like real plaster on a girl. I don't I don't know. I, I'm assuming that's what it was. I mean, you're not gonna want to plaster somebody's face for real. I think that would be a little irresponsible. <laughs>
1: Unless, yeah, unless I don't, he doesn't seem like someone trained in the ways of doing that thing where you put the straws in the nose first. <laughs> no, And also, also, sir, that is way too much plaster, even if you're making a, a face cast, like focus on the artistry and the craftsmanship, apply an even layer.
0: Yeah, well, I find this, I find this whole sequence very unsettling because he is the whole time he's like telling her she's going to die. I mean, ultimately, he walks over to Tina. He says, it's, you're so pretty. It's a shame you're going to die. And then, yeah, he proceeds to get his little bucket of plaster. And he's like, "You, you will have a hard time ble- breathing, but that's not what it. That's not what's going to kill you. You're going to die of fright."
1: You'll panic as I seal the lips.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he straps her head down and like literally starts to pile on, you know, plaster. And yeah, he's like, he is taunting her. He's got a whole
1: yeah. He's got a whole like montage of just like. And now the eyes, your world is dark.
0: You, you, you can't breathe, can you? It's getting harder to breathe. Your heart is going to explode from (laughs) fright.
1: And then he describes how like the plaster is like nice and cool at first, but then eventually it starts to burn. Yeah, it's, it's a very morbid macabre, like not registering as PG to me. (laughs)
0: you generally here's the thing that makes it creepy a it's a horrible way to die but let's remove that from the equation you rarely rarely see a slasher movie villain like taunt their victims do you know what i mean Mm. i mean i'm talking like verbal taunting like You're going to die. It's going to be. No, you don't see Jason doing that. You don't see Freddie doing that. You don't see Michael Myers doing that. You don't see Leatherface doing that. You don't see slasher villains like literally providing a commentary on their victims as they're killing them. And I think that's what makes it so creepy is he's just so like matter of factly telling this poor girl, she's going to suffocate your heart's going to. I mean, it's, it's quite unsettling. It's really um, kind of a, a, an icky scene to watch.
1: Yeah. He's very much like, Buckle up, you're in my world now, you're gonna become one of us. Uh, it's you know, it almost seems like a, a ritual that he does, yeah.
0: And you do, yeah, you do see the moment that she dies, like she tries to take a breath and she just like, oh, She dies, and he's like, Yeah, oh, you're so pretty, you're one of us now. And this whole time, Jerry has been like, b- Biting in his uh, his constraints, so he's actually gets away at this moment and he is able to attack a little too too little too late jerry because this poor girl is already dead but he he does attack davy and they struggle and davy gets the best of him and we get this moment where davy like grabs him by the throat and like lifts him up against the wall like off of the floor
1: i do like the score at that moment it's very uh I like, it's like a strings or whatever, but like, that's like cl- a classic horror movie moment where they put the music in the right spot for that. Like, is he going to get strangled right then and there?
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because Jerry's Jerry's fate throughout this movie is oftentimes not 100% determined. Like we don't really know what happens to him or, you know, I think that was kind of a, a little bit of an odd choice to do Throw you know, Cause he, he comes and he goes as we see. So back at the museum, we get this like little moment where like the phone rings and Molly answers it, but there's no response. But then she realizes the phone's not even plugged in. Like she realizes that like the phone cord is cut.
1: <laughs> and she doesn't seem to be freaked out by that. She's just like, okay,
0: huh. Well, she she does get a flashlight and she's like, Well, I guess I'll I'll go out and, and look for everybody. Down in the basement now, Davey has Jerry tied back up with Becky. And he has this whole, I mean, this dude is given, he's given monologues. <laughs> like he has this whole, no, he has, he has this whole thing about how he hates his brother. His brother's a fool. All his brother cares about is that stupid museum. And that one day he is going to get rid of his brother. He also mentions that his brother makes him wear these masks. Why?
1: Because he's jealous of his, his attractiveness and like... I'm pre- he, he's more handsome than uh, his brother, I guess. Yeah,
0: and he, he says he's, a, I'm a, he's afraid I'm going to take his wife from him.
1: <laughs> big, yeah, big connection to the main plot.
0: <laughs> yeah, and then he's like, yeah, since people don't come around here anymore, I have to go to them. I have to go to the highway, and the gas station is perfect. Yeah, and he, he also makes the comment about his power. Um, because this whole time, also, a key falls on the floor, and um, Becky is trying to get it, and all of a sudden, it starts to like move away from her by itself. And obviously, he he's doing it. He's like, oh, I have this power. My brother doesn't let me use it, but I, I like to use it because it makes me feel good. So now we're getting a carry tie-in with the whole telekinesis, obviously. So it's like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Carrie, Psycho, and we're getting all these
1: house of wax and um i I like how on it like he he actually shows a little bit of vulnerability here what he's like regarding his ability he's like but it actually scares me sometimes i don't really know what i'm doing and that kind of reminded me of of carrie a little bit because when the whole the whole prom scene with carrie she she obviously lost control i doubt she wanted to go that far and but it seemed like she thought everybody was laughing and obviously not everybody was laughing.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. I totally agree with you. Yeah, I do think there's um, definitely some parallels between the idea of, yeah, if you have this power, how how easy would it be to lose control under certain circumstances, right?
1: And it's suggested by many movies that it seems very easy to lose control and, and yeah.
0: <laughs> well, stupid Molly is ro- roaming around the woods with the flashlight. I don't know, you know, we haven't really stopped and talked about Molly as a final girl. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I, I don't think you know in the annals of like his horror film history, she's definitely not the strongest by any means. you know, me and Roger have, have done lists where we talk about like the worst final girls in in horror film history. I, I guess I've never considered her even for that list just because she's so forgettable. like there's just nothing remotely interesting about this character at all.
1: Yeah. She doesn't, she doesn't have a lot to do at the beginning of the movie. Like, I don't even think she talks. She, she, I don't think she talks for the first time until like 15 minutes in. So like she, her big moment is definitely like the set. I will say she steps up towards the end, but yeah, for the most part, she really like, she just, She's very. She's that character who's kind of complacent, and she doesn't want to do anything, and she just sits and like mopes, and she's just a, a buzzkill. I don't like her.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. She's very bland, especially when you compare her to the personalities of like the uh, Becky and the Eileen character, and then you get this, and it's just really hard to like understand the motivation that Mister. Slothson has with with picking her as being the one that he is so uh smitten with yeah. and i get that she's oh she's this sweet little innocent you know but i don't know there's, there's just something about her and i don't i don't think it's the actress i just think it's what's characters wasn't really all that well written mm. um in the grand scheme of the film there's not a lot for her to to do but she's out in the middle of the woods uh when she hears her name being called and she's like who's there who's there and all of a sudden davy busts out of the trees and he's holding he, now he's wearing a blonde wig like he's looking like
1: a luscious blonde Bob looking like debbie from <laughs> adam's family values
0: when he's carrying he's carrying woody's he, woody head the mannequin woody head and he's like my friend wants to say hi and all of a sudden this thing's jaw like pops open it screams at her Aah! Aah! I mean, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. And she runs through the woods. I mean, and he's chasing her. This is a good, like, this is a a very parallel, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre scene of Sally Hardesty running through the woods. We get that here. Um, At one point, like she falls and he jumps out and he's like, throws the mannequin head at her. And when it hits the floor, like, or hits the ground, it like turns, turns towards her and like screams her name.
1: I'm like, so I, 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 I have, we finally get a little bit of effort from her. Like she hops a fence, she climbs and hops a fence. So I'm like, yes, she's doing something.
0: <laughs> no, she does. I mean, unfortunately it doesn't, it doesn't really last long. I mean, yeah. but she does, she she does at least give a good chase. Uh, she continues to run out onto the road where she runs into Mr. Sloss pulling up in her, in his pickup truck. And she immediately gets in and tells him My God, some horrible man in a mask was chasing me. And this is when he's like, oh, my God, that's my brother. (laughs) Yeah. And she's like, well, we got to do something. We have to call the police. And he's like, well, first of all, let me, you know, let me try to contain him. We're going to go back to the house. I'm going to turn on the radio because that generally lures him. And she's like, no, I'm not going back there. He's like, well, the hell you are. Let's go. Uh, and he's like, he wants to know what, like what mask uh, Davey was wearing. She's like, Oh, it was some like doll mask. He's like, Oh, that's him trying to look like me.
1: I, that, that was, that's a stretch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know. It is a stretch. I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. But he's like, yeah, he's always wanted to look like me. I'm the older brother.
1: That's another That's another 2005 House of Wax thing where you have like one good brother, one bad brother. Um, so many parallels.
0: So they get back to the house. He tells her to wait outside. He actually gives her a shotgun. Um, she's like, I never fired a gun before. He's like, just point and pull the trigger. You'll be fine.
1: The way so the way she's holding this thing, I was like, oh, my God, she's going to end up like the kid from Planet Terror.
0: <laughs> she's yeah.
1: Like, um,
0: Yeah. She looks so awkward, but yeah, he goes inside and she's left alone and, you know, she's waiting, she's waiting, he's not coming out and she gets her big Jess from Black Christmas freak out moment where she she gets to scream. Cause remember Jess in Black Christmas is like, Phil, Bob, answer me, please answer
1: me. She gets really freaked the hell out because yeah, you, you start hearing coyotes and, who knows if it's actually? I've never even thought about this, but who knows if it's actually real coyotes or if it's or if it's uh, the killer Davy d- doing like a kind of a ventriloquist thing with some of the puppet, uh, some of the dummies. Who knows? But yeah, no, she's like Mr. Slowsen. Okay, Mr. Slowsen, let's go, please.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's like Mr. Slowsen. She's like scream because he's not answering her. She's like, Mr. Slauson! And then she hears them. She's like, oh, thank God. But all of a sudden, fucking uh, Davey, like, we see him come out from around the truck.
1: I love that so much. It's it's another, like, th- there are definitely moments where, Lisa, like I said, I don't want to compare to Michael Myers. But yeah, there are definitely those, like, signature, like, horror movie moments where... I think all three girls have all like Eileen, Becky, and now they all have that moment where it's like it's behind them and they can't see it. And it's slowly making its way
0: towards her. Yeah. And he slowly comes towards her and she's like, Mr. Slowson. Of course, no answers, but uh, Hey, what does this bitch do? She wastes no time. She fucking shoots. She pulls the trigger. She
1: steps up final. Like I was proud of her in this moment, but of, uh, but of course, uh, you find out
0: uh i mean i'll let you (laughs) they are they're blanks she shoots because he gets up and she shoots him again he's like you shot me with blanks bang bang you're dead bang bang you're dead and she wastes no time she's like you know what fuck you okay i'll use this as a fucking bat she fucking takes the gun and bashes him across the head with it i'm like you go molly i was really
1: proud of her in this moment for sure
0: well, yeah, but the mask cracks and splits open and, you know, he's trying to hold it on, but he lifts his head up and the mask just comes off. And who the fuck is it?
1: Mr. Slausen.
0: It is Mr. <laughs> Slowson. And she says, you, you. And she takes off running into the woods. So we get another chase through the woods. She hears him coming. There's this. I mean, she's, she's really trying. I got to give this broad quote. as far as. Much as I really don't like this character as a final girl, she does some smart things here in this moment. You know, with the gun, and now here because she does get into the water. Like she's like, "Fuck this! I'm gonna get into the, the middle of this fucking pond to, to try to you know get away from this maniac." So there's this really moment. Like, you know, there's this moment where she's in the middle of this pond and and highly effective. Like this, this is one of the best shots in the film. He slowly like comes out of the water behind her and is like just lurking there for a second. And I'm like, fuck, that's actually a, a really cool shot.
1: How did he get there before her? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Telekinesis. He teleported himself.
1: I Yeah, I guess.
0: I don't know. I thought the same thing, but I was like, whatever. There's already so many things in this film that you just have to go with because they don't make a fucking lick of sense. But he does. he does grab her and push her underwater. And I guess we're left to assume that she was drowned. But in the in the basement, we got back to the basement because Becky and, and Jerry are still down there. She's able to like push something she found. I don't know if it's like a knife or a file or something. She pushes it over to him so he can like start sawing the rope off. There's this little moment where Mr. Slauson goes to have soup and crackers with a mannequin. <laughs> Very kooky. I like this moment. The mannequin's voice in this just kills me. He gives the mannequin soup and he's like, here, eat your soup. And the mannequin doesn't respond. So he's like, oh fuck. So he puts. a mask on. He's like, there, is that better? And then the mannequin like pops up and the mannequin's like, yes, I would like some soup. (laughs) And Mr. Slauson's like, would you, would you like some crackers? Yes. Crackers would be very good.
1: I think it would have been way more interesting to dub, um, Eileen's voice with, with that, with her character, with the, with the dummy, with the mannequin. No.
0: Yeah. True. True. I just like the, I just like the way this man, mannequin sounds. It's just so like matter of fact. and so like creepy. It's like, Yes, these crackers are very good. And then all of a sudden it's like head falls off.
1: <laughs> and that I feel like that whole scene is like the music for that. The score for that totally fits, obviously, because it's just a kooky, almost like Tom and Jerry kind of weird, like silly moment.
0: Yeah. And he's like, God, I got to get that fixed. Molly, we cut to Molly. She wakes up. She's in bed. So she's made. She's not drowned. She, she she tries to get up out of bed, but she realizes she's strapped down and she can't. So she's like, starts to throw a fit when all of a sudden Mr. Slauson comes in. He's wearing his blonde doll wig and he's pushing Eileen, the Eileen mannequin, in a wheelchair. <laughs> he's like, I brought you a visitor.
1: You know what I was thinking, though? Like, is she is Molly strapped in or like Eileen, maybe his power or whatever. It It's almost like this force that's pushing them down so they can't like he does it to windows and stuff. So why not people? You know what I mean? So she's probably like pressed into the bed and she literally can't move. So it could be his power. Who knows?
0: That's a good point. I I just figured he had her strapped in. Yeah. But he does have this telekinetic ability. So yeah, it's very much that he could be like using the powers to keep her there. She does call him insane. She's like, you're insane. And he's like, you should not say that. You should be nice. I'm just trying to be nice to you. Uh, and I feel bad for her now because she's like, Mister Slosson, can you please just let me go? He's like, You, you know, I can't do that.
1: There's always that moment where, where the yeah, the whatever character or characters that are left, they always try to like bargain with the bad guy, and you're like, Don't, you're not gonna strike a deal. You're not gonna, <laughs> you're not getting out of this.
0: No, yeah, they always, they, hey, they always try. Um, Jerry and Becky get free. From the basement, and they go upstairs to the hallway, which is full of mannequins. I love the scene so much. I know, I know. Davey, quote unquote, is in a room playing with baby dolls. <laughs> <laughs> he is like literally has two baby dolls. He's talking from him. He's like, oh, when Jerry and Becky like have to go by the door and he senses something. So he goes out into the hallway, and Jerry and, and Becky literally have to act like they're mannequins. I mean, they're in the hallway trying to blend in with these mannequins.
1: And once again, house of wax, totally that, that whole hallway scene reminded me of like the movie theater bit, uh, where the two siblings are like sitting in the audience and they're like pretending to be dummies. And, uh, yeah. Another moment where I was like, yeah, they totally just, they basically remade this movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Well, Davy, it fools Davy because he goes back into the bedroom to play with his dollies and uh, Jerry then takes the moment to like get into the main like living room. He's trying to get out the door. He's trying to get out the windows. They're locked. All of a sudden, two doors whoosh, swish open, the, a la Leatherface just appearing. And it is, of course, it's Davey. And I love this because Jerry Sally Hardest is he, his way out this fucking window. He just jumps through this fucking window.
1: He pulls a Roger oh, from uh, Night of the Demons. Yeah, he he flings himself out a window. And... Uh, I, like I've seen so many people fling themselves out of windows. Now they make it look so effortless and pain-free. It must just be all the adrenaline.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. And he takes off running and then like Davy goes out there. And he's like, you can't get away from me, mister. <laughs> and I love the fact that we see Becky, like her ass, like t- goes out that window and she runs into the woods.
1: I would have waited maybe just a few more minutes for him to chase after the other one before getting out.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Because he's still standing right there. And he like, so he like sees her take off running. And so she's running through the woods. She's not really paying attention to where she's going. And she ends up like running right into Mr. Slauson. And at this point we know, Oh fuck, because we know he's the villain, but she does not know this yet. So he, he picks her up and tells her he's going to take her back and get her fixed up in no time. So he, he takes her to The museum sets her on the bed, tells him, tells her he's going to get his doctoring bag. And then she hears someone call her name. (laughs) Becky. She's like, Woody? She gets up uh, and she's like looking around and all of a sudden this like random door creaks open and it is a mannequin of Woody. So question,
1: we have a mannequin of Woody. But then there's also like a headless Woody that like the the face looks totally different. So I'm like, does he have like a few different versions of Woody that he uses?
0: <laughs> he must have been so just enamored by Woody's by Woody's looks, by his manly looks, that he's like, I need to have more than one of these. But as this Woody is revealed. Mr. Slawson is just like, like in his chair laughing and she's like, what the fuck? So she's trying to get away. Suddenly all the mannequins come to life. And these are the animatronic mannequins. This is the Davy Crockett, uh, the cowboy, the, and there's, they start like shooting real bullets at her.
1: <laughs> and this is fine. And then, so um, I said before that I didn't really mind the score too much, but this is literally the third time it's used. And especially here, it probably would have been better to go at something that sounded a bit more scary and sinister. Um, unless, of course, the like once again, unless the score's purpose is like, let's just keep, uh, keep to, is to keep us with like slousing in his head, like, oh, this is just a light, playful, fun game that he's playing, even though people are dying.
0: Yeah. Well, he seems to be enjoying it. He's he's actually the one that obviously is is uh causing these mannequins to come to life, it has nothing to do with really. You know, mechanics. It's his telekinesis that's doing it. So he's so he's just getting a kick out of it. Well, they shoot at her. She she's dodging bullets. Uh, there's a moment where like the Native American uh, one throws a tomahawk at her and it barely misses her head. So she like tries to dart away and and it immediately throws a, a knife at her and unfortunately she doesn't move fast enough because it embeds itself right in the back of her fucking head. <laughs>
1: i i was devastated (laughs) but but i will say i'm so happy that she's in as much of the movie as she is like she's you know she's not someone who gets killed off super early she's literally in most of the movie there's like 10 or 15 minutes of the movie left uh and yet her death is so good and it's very effective and like she she like dies sort of almost like sitting upright like almost propped against a cabinet, It it was very, it was a very interesting choice. And yeah, the, I I was reading that the whole, like, so was it a knife or a tomahawk? Whatever, whatever got thrown at the back of her head, I guess there was like, like the mechanics of it. I guess she was wearing like a, like a block or like a pad on the back of her head and they literally chucked. So she probably felt that for real. She probably actually got hurt.
0: Probably yeah. I mean, it, it's very effectively done, and I do like the fact that, like, yes, yeah, she doesn't die like instantly. You know, so many slasher movies, or so many horror movies, like a, a character gets stabbed and they're immediately dead, like they just drop to the floor dead, or they get strangled for f- five seconds and they die. She actually, her death is quite prolonged and quite agonizing. Like she she reaches behind her and she's she feels that she has this knife stuck in the back of her, and she just like slowly. Then it starts to slide down the wall. It's her hands are covered in blood and leaving like bloody handprints. I mean, it's, it's quite effective.
1: Um, and I think, yeah, no, in my bloody Valentine, actually the, like the, the main girl, like her supporting friend actually has kind of like a drawn out death too, at the end where she's like, Oh, I've been stabbed. Oh, and they like, they cut it out. Yeah. They cut it out of the, uh, the. I guess the theatrical version. So it's like in the uncut version that like it shows her like suffering a little bit. Um, And yeah, no, she definitely, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm glad that they gave her a lot to do in this movie.
0: Yeah. She's probably the most dynamic character in the film. You know, they do, they give her a little bit more personality. Eileen has some personality, but Eileen lasts literally like 10 minutes. I mean, she's not in the movie very long. You know,
1: I, I also love that Becky wasn't just like Tanya Roberts character. Like she wasn't like, she wasn't there just to be eye candy. She was like a very compelling character. She like, she cared about her friends. She was curious. She was funny. Like she's just like, she was a joy to watch on screen.
0: Oh yeah. She always is. She always is. But yeah, her death scene, you know, as, as painful as it is, cause you don't want to see the character die. It's really, really well done. Now we cut back to the bedroom and okay. So I'm, I'm curious, Molly like looks like sick and feverish all of a sudden. Like she, she's in bed. Like she's, acting like she has like she's sick she's covered in like sweat like what the hell does she have the flu all of a sudden I was so confused about that
1: does she drink something is that maybe he gave her something or she's actually maybe this is the point where she's starting to hallucinate and go crazy like I think she's just like she's in that she's in that stage of her whatever where she's just in shock basically
0: it could be, but they really make it look like she has the flu to the point where, like, this ma- motherly mannequin sitting next to her comes to life and, like, wipes her brow.
1: <laughs> so that's actually the wife. That's actually the wife of the director at the time.
0: Yeah, I read that, and he cut out her lines, so she was pissed at him. <laughs> because apparently that mannequin had like the person had two lines and he cut it out in post-production. She she got really pissed at him. But yeah, so this leans forward, wipes her brow and poor Molly's like, can you please take me home? And it just turns back into a mannequin. And Slauson comes in, he's in his blonde doll, get up. And he basically lifts her off the bed, takes her upstairs, sets her on the floor among the mannequins and just has a little bit of telekinetic fun with her by making all of the mannequins, come to life again and start opening their mouths and, and saying oh uh, uh, and it causes her to like fucking f- have a conniption fit. she like freaks out
1: she goes into a full break mode yeah
0: yeah she's like stop and then she like curls into a ball
1: my so there doesn't seem to be let, i think the whole purpose of the scene like you were saying is just to show that he's like messing with her because there doesn't seem to be any huge reason for this scene to happen like I don't think it does anything other to show that he's messing with her. Like why take her from the bedroom where she was in bed to this random room just to take her into his brother's room eventually? Like, I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean he's just taunting her. I guess he 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 I mean it's part of his sadistic like play. I think he likes to be able to use these mannequins to taunt his his prey. I don't know. Uh, but he I mean, because you can tell he's like getting a kick out of it. He's purposely doing it like there's little gl- like we get intercuts with him glancing at the specific mannequins to get them to do their thing.
1: Oh, yeah. And he totally watches the whole thing with Becky. Like he's just sitting there having a good time.
0: Yeah. Well, he, she's once she freaks out and he curls her in a ball or she curls up into a ball. He tells her that it's basically time and he picks her back up again and drags her into his brother's room or the room that used to be his brother's and she's like what are you going to do to me and she's like he's like i'm going to take care of you molly and he like sets her on the floor and then he's like you know what you're special you remind me of your of my wife
1: <laughs> i'm in danger
0: <laughs> this gets a little uncomfortable he puts the wife he puts a, the mask face of his wife onto molly and then he like starts to kiss her
1: Pretty much almost like starts to rape her, yeah.
0: Yes, like forcefully. And she like turns away. She's like, please, Mr. Slauson, quit it. And, you know, he stops. But then he's like, looks at her again. He's like, you're so pretty. You look just like her. You got to tell me you love me. Tell me you love me, Molly. And she eventually gives in and says, I love you. Oh, but then
1: this next part is so creepy. uh, Just the face that he makes.
0: Well, he... Yeah, he leans in and gives her a kiss. And then, yeah, he pulls back and just, like, goes... I mean, he has this reaction, like...
1: You can tell he's having a flashback to that night he caught his wife and Davey, like, shacking up.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he's visibly upset. And then he just, like, out of nowhere, like, he admits that he killed him. He, like, he says, I killed them both. Uh, I killed my brother and my wife because they were whoring around on me in my own house. And he's like, a man has a right to kill his wife if she's cheating on him
1: i got a legal right to that that's what the law says a, a man does it though? His, a man finds his wife cheating on him he's got a legal right to kill them both
0: i was like what <laughs> yeah what state is this i don't know because it sounds pretty extreme to me
1: when he admits to killing the wife and the brother i like lost it because molly grabs one of the dolls <laughs> she like
0: clutches it. <laughs> yeah She's like, oh no, this is too, too much. But yeah, I mean, he, he admits to killing them both. Um, so this whole time, you know, he, he, he's living, it's kind of like a sort of like a Norman Bates thing. Like he regrets, seems to maybe regret what he did. Um, so now he's like taking on this personality of his brother that he uses then to, to kill, uh, innocent people. Like it's, it's definitely a, a dual dual personality thing going on here. Like he's become he becomes his brother at specific moments. And his brother's the one that does all the killing. Oh, for yeah.
1: sure. When he sees, when he sees Eileen's body earlier, he you could tell he's in like total shock. He's like, oh crap.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, so poor Molly has no choice but to just be like, please, please let me go. And he's like, You know, I can't do that. Uh, I can't let you go, and then all of a sudden, there's a fucking knock on the front door. <laughs> out of nowhere, out of nowhere, there's a knock on the front door, interrupting this very tense scene. And who is it? It's fucking Jerry. I mean, this Jerry guy just appears and reappears whenever. I mean, there's like no rhyme or reason to it. I could have done without this scene because to me, it's just like, uh, because I was kind of caught up in in the whole dynamic between Molly and Slauson. But but Jerry shows up and he gets in, and you know, immediately like. Molly goes over to him and she's like, "Kill him, kill him, Jerry, kill him." I mean, and and Jerry's like, "Oh, I don't know. You need to stay. You need to stay away from us, or I'm going to hurt you." And Slosson is just like he loses, and he's like, "You hurt me?" (sighs) And Molly's like, "Kill him, Jerry." And Slosson's like, "He can't." And then she looks over, and so he so his telekinetic abilities are strong enough that he can turn a human being into a mannequin. Is that what I'm supposed to believe?
1: Um, there's a lot of Theories uh, about this movie that it's not just about him. Some people believe that he's literally just moving around the dummies and mannequins, right? But then there's also this. I've I've heard a couple of takes on it where it's like maybe he really is like this is this whole like tourist trap thing. Maybe he's like the master of this kind of <laughs> not realm, but like that. Maybe these he's really trapping souls and dummies, and he's not even aware of it or something. Or because you see the eyes moving and stuff and. Um, I don't know, even the whole like ethereal thing that a lot of the dummies do where they're like, ah, like my question is, when did he have time to turn Jerry <laughs> into a mannequin?
0: I don't know. I was, uh, this is really confused. So I don't know if like that was, yeah, I don't know if it was a really Jerry that comes into the house at this moment, or is it a mannequin version of Jerry that Mr. Slosson is purposely having come. Uh, regardless, I mean, it's Jerry is literally turned into a mannequin in front of, of Molly to the point where like Mr. Slauson rips his arm off and then rips his head off and throws it on the ground and the body just collapses into a heap of plastic. I'm like, okay, I was a little confused with this part about how he's just able to turn someone into a mannequin, like with telekinetic abilities. I don't think that would, I don't know. Uh, this part just didn't sit right with me. I could have used, I've could have gone without this whole Jerry coming back scene.
1: I think some people like the the whole like kind of crazy twist. Like they're like it's so it's so left field, and they weren't even. Yeah, you're not expecting him to be uh, a man again. But I feel like this whole. I feel like the last like twenty minutes, you start seeing whether you're seeing it through like Molly's eyes or somebody. I feel like you start seeing more. It's like roughly half dummies, and sometimes you'll see like human stand-ins. You'll see actual people just like standing in the background. So, it could it could be that like. Maybe she seeing, maybe Molly seeing Jerry as Jerry. Still, I don't know. It's it's one of those weird, like I guess, open to interpretation.
0: True, and I guess you just got to go with whatever you know makes you <laughs> make the film make sense to you. I guess I don't know.
1: She's starting to see how real these mannequins look. At, at least maybe to Slausen. like she's getting a glimpse into what he he probably views all of these things around him as, as friends who are animated and move and like are, are actual people. Um, so I feel like she starts to almost go while she's starting to go crazy, almost like she's starting to see what he's seeing.
0: That could be because of the mannequins, like all of the mannequins around her, then start to laugh again and move. And she has this, another freak out moment where she's like, this is not happening. She's screaming and he's like, Oh, but it, But it is Molly, but it is. Oh, but it is Molly. Well, then he he picks up his wife, the mannequin of his wife, and he starts dancing with her. And, you know, he's spinning around in a circle and she's watching. And there are actual moments where she sees the wife mannequin, like, come to life as a real human. I mean, uh, and, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just it's chaos until she notices that there's an axe. I love that there's just this axe conveniently on the floor of this bedroom. Um, for this particular moment, because she sees this axe, she she picks it up, and I mean, as he's spinning around gleefully with his wife's mannequin, she s- axes him in the fucking neck. I do like the moment that there's the like when the mannequins like realize what she's about to do; they all go ah ah. ah.
1: <laughs> almost like they try to. The thing is, almost like they're trying to warn him.
0: <laughs> they are, but it, he's he's too he's too caught up in. You know, the moment with this wife mannequin because he, you know, everything that's transpired, he thinks he found, you know, his new wife. So he's so, I don't know. It's so weird.
1: He mentions earlier that he, even he doesn't know the extent of his ability. So, so I almost like the theory that there's some kind of supernatural twist to it, that it's not just a, I'm moving things
0: around. Mm-hmm. True. True. Well, she, he dies. Like she, she literally axes him in the neck and she dies. And then this ending just seems so like, I don't know. The ending doesn't flow very well. Like this last scene, uh, it just kind of comes on the screen abruptly. I don't know if you agree with me or not, but like it just appears, and it's her like driving down the street in the car in Jerry's car, which is now running, and she has the mannequin versions of all of her friends in the car with her.
1: <laughs> um. So it's like either she went crazy from everything that happened, or. I was like, maybe it's just like one of those gag endings where they didn't know how to end it. Like Nightmare on Elm Street, you have all the kids in the car at the end, and and um, in pieces. Even the movie pieces at the ending, where it, it's like clearly the the dummy is dead, so it wouldn't be pulling that. It wouldn't be pulling his you know what off. <laughs> like so, so maybe it's just one of those like surreal endings that either it happened or it didn't. I don't know.
0: The ending. I mean, yeah, I guess you can interpret it several different ways. She's she's gone crazy. I don't know where she's taking these people, where she's going, but it leaves a lot of interpretation. Sort of like the ending of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre where Sally Hardesty is driven off into the you know, distance laughing maniacally. But, you know, I guess the fates of our these final girls are kind of left to our imagination. Um, you know, what's going to become of Molly at, because of this experience?
1: Maybe she'll open up her own tourist trap. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, she already has some dummies for it. For sure. You know, she has a car <laughs> full of them, but no, that is, I mean, that's, that's tourist trap, a little odd, charming, at times terrifying little piece of cinema that plays homage to several films that came before it. Um, and I, I, think it does it very effectively. Uh, it is quite, it's quite interesting to me that this film sort of was under the radio under the radar for such a long time. Because when you think about like, If I'm thinking about, oh, films that are Texas Chainsaw Massacre ripoffs, if you want to use that word, or clones, whatever word sounds better to you, or whatever. This is probably one of the better ones, and it certainly is, even though it does borrow a lot from like Texas Chainsaw, from Carrie, from Psycho. It also has its own unique identity and style to it. There is something very uh, surreal and dreamlike and atmospheric about this film you know where Texas Chainsaw Massacre really has a gritty, you know, documentary feel to it. This film is quite the opposite.
1: I I I agree. I think you're you're very much like once they enter this place, they're literally in his world. Uh I I've, I've actually even read comparisons to like Nightmare on Elm Street almost like I I I don't know, it might be kind of a stretch, but like yeah, this whole place is just like his microcosm of chaos where he's just doing all these things and everyone's kind of subjected to it. And uh, I don't know. I, I kind of really love the idea that, that there could be something, like I said, something to do with souls or something to do with, ap- like your your soul is trapped in the tourist trap. I kind of like that, that it's not just, it might not just be objects moving around.
0: Absolutely. And you know, when we talk about films that, you know, when we talk about like the remake craze, now, you can you can very much argue to the point that the 2005 House of Wax remake isn't necessarily a remake of the original House of Wax, but is more of a remake of this film. I've seen that argued many, many times, and I, I get it. I can see why. Um, but it's also surprising to me that this this particular film never has had a proper remake, you know, of all the films that have been remade over the course of the last 15 20 years I'm surprised this one has not that somebody hasn't latched onto this to to remake it um, because i feel like there's a lot of really cool things you could you could explore with this film that uh, like you mentioned more of the things about ideas of, of diving more into the supernatural elements or are are these souls being trapped at this tourist trap within the mannequins and, and going a different route or exploring the story a little bit more with a little bit more layers. But with that said, I mean, I still think that this film is highly effective. It's one that I find myself thinking about randomly. I don't know why, um, because I have I hadn't watched this film probably for a good, maybe six or seven years before you suggested we do it for this podcast. But I do find myself just randomly thinking of specific things in this film um, because I think the imagery is so, so unique and so memorable in some of these scenes
1: oh 100 i um i'm kind of i'm kind of surprised too that it hasn't really gotten like a remake or a reboot um mannequins are (laughs) mannequins are already creepy enough like so adding like those adding those moments where like their their jaws basically fall off as they scream and like i totally i want more of that (laughs)
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, in this film, you know, it moves, it, there's, there's never any b- boring parts to this film. I mean, this film moves in a pretty, I mean, the pacing of this film is really great. Like there's no chance to really get bored. Things just move at a, at an appropriate rate. The, the opening scene starts out with a bang. And I mean, I think it it maintains that throughout the whole film. You get enough of, yeah, you get enough of this creepy mannequin action throughout the film to definitely make it not be, Boring, or or something that seems like a chore to get through. I mean, I think that for it's about an, a ninety minute film, and I think that it actually goes by pretty quickly.
1: It does, yeah. I'll say that sometimes there is a little bit of not that it, not that it goes slow, but there is a little bit of like back and forth with and uh, going to the going to the museum to talk to the girls and then going back and then going to the museum again. So there is a little bit of that, but I think you you obviously needed those moments to get the backstory with the wife. And like those scenes are kind of essential, you know, so I, I don't think there was any way around doing
0: that. No. Yeah. Because you definitely need that exposition or you need that, you know, you need enough of that to be explained that. So the story, when it comes together, it makes sense. And I do like the, you know, I mean, they, they try to. I, I don't know. I'm trying to remember. Like, I I don't think I necessarily ever like. I don't think this this twist of it being Slauson is like as maybe surprising as some other horror movie twists. Like, I don't think. I think. I think it's like. What am I trying to say? I don't think it comes out of nowhere. I think if when when it happens, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I probably figured that.
1: I think a lot of people can see it coming, yeah, because he's like literally the only guy that you see, and I mean, other other than. Um, I mean, obviously the brother, Davey, he, he shows up like halfway through and you finally get to hear him speak and everything. But like, it seems, yeah, I, I can even, even the first time watching this, I was like, he is, he's a nice gentle guy, but there, yeah, maybe I leans onto something. There was just kind of like something about him that I was like, maybe, maybe this is the killer.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I know. Like in the credits, they used a fake name for Davies because they didn't want to give it away. They they came up with a name. They 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 like combined Chuck Connors kids' names to come up with like it's like something Cody uh, is is how Davies credited. I don't know, but yeah. So I mean, yeah, guys, this is a film that I think definitely needs to be talked about more. It is um, to me, it's a standout film from the late '70s in terms of horror. Um, I'm glad, like, it does seem to have a lot of respect attached to it now. I think this film is talked about fondly looked at, looked back at fondly because it, it, while it did, you know, borrow a lot from films that came before it, it definitely established its own unique personality and identity. So guys, what are your thoughts on tourist trap? Um, let us know, uh, you know, let us know in the comments on social media, uh, how you feel about this film? Do you think it gets the recognition it deserves? Uh, what are some of your thoughts? But, um, yeah, I got to say a huge, 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 huge thank you to Brett for a suggesting this film because, Like I said, this is one that's been on my list since I started this podcast.
1: Yeah, even before we did, uh, even before we did, when we were thinking about what we were gonna do for the Patreon episode, Death Screams, I, I think this was on our list. We were and and you were like, oh my god, we really want to cover this at some point because it's just it was it's so good. Um, so I'm so glad that we picked this one.
0: Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, and then I got to thank you for for coming on, um, coming on the show again. Now people got to hear you on our main feed. Yay! Yay! More reach. <laughs> <laughs> more re- so speaking of that, why don't you, uh, well, before we end the episode, just tell people like if they, if they want to follow you on social media or they want to know more about your, what you're doing, what you're up to where can they find you, where's the best place for them to find you?
1: Um, I'm mostly now pretty much just on like Instagram. I'm on, I'm on Facebook a lot, but like, I would say the best place is Instagram. Um, at bready machete. <laughs> um, I love that. Yeah, well, I created I created that username back in like I don't know twenty two thousand nine, no, it was like twenty thirteen or something. But uh, I spelled machete wrong, so it's actually machete with uh, two T's. So ready two T's machete two T's.
0: Oh, uh, I never noticed that.
1: Yeah, I mean stylistically, stylistically, it looks better. Anyways, whatever. Um, anyways, I yeah, I um, I'm on there a lot to share and stuff that I've been watching and uh it's primarily it's mostly just a horror account at this point. Um but yeah, no, I I also have been um like I mentioned I I've, I've been uh kind of jumping into freelance editing, so if you have like a short story or something that you're working on or or like a novella, um yeah, I'd be interested in hearing about it.
0: Yeah, hit him up because I know trust me, I know that there are several Talented individuals that are utilizing you to edit their stuff. So that is super exciting. Um, hopefully it leads to, to more opportunities for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, with that said, guys, that is tourist trap. We shall be back. Um, hopefully next week. Uh, you know, Roger is, you know, he's he still, like I said, he, when he's coming back, is still a little bit up in the air, but I will, you know, I'm doing my best to, to keep these episodes coming we had a great episode last week with mikey manshot and now this one tourist trap but yeah guys thank you for tuning in again let us know your thoughts on tourist trap and again brett thank you so so much all righty good night thank you